Hey, Jim. Hey, Catherine. How's it going? Uh, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm repeating myself by saying things are just keep getting worse and I keep hearing from panicked, um, rightly panicked doctors. So um, mm-hmm. maybe we could uh, break from that and talk about people who are panicked about the economy. Um, also, right. Well, can we, can I get a quick update first though, on what you're hearing from doctors? Um, yeah. In New York, we are at capacity. So we were attempting to flatten the curve. We have, we have flattened the curve, but it is not flat. It is not flat enough. We have hit that line of maximum capacity of hospitals. When did we hit that today? Uh, well, this touches on the piece that I have coming out very soon tonight or tomorrow. Um, we, we started rationing back when we started telling people not to buy masks because the doctors need them and then not to get tested unless they were really high risk. And then um, last week, not to come to the hospital unless you were very sick. And now we are rationing by deciding who gets ICU beds. And right now we're still in the realm of what could be defensible, but Northwestern has floated ideas like a DNR, do not resuscitate, who has COVID-19. So even if you're 30 years old and you're in the hospital and you um, stop breathing, you are just pronounced dead. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's not in practice. That's just a proposal about what might happen. Right. So when you get to extreme rationing scenarios, you need these guidelines, you know, that weight of that moral decision in that moment to, they just have to, they need a clear directive and triage system they can follow that is determined by someone who's got an eye on the bigger system and how it's effectively allocating resources. Right, right. I mean, right now we're still resuscitating people, but I, I just uh, emailed with, uh, with Stephen Thomas, who we talked to on this show. Mm-hmm. Who ha- who trained with military developing emergency biopreparedness protocols, um, and has modeled these scenarios. And I asked him if we could get to the point of doing widespread um, do not resuscitate directives for a- anyone in in our hospitals with COVID nineteen. And he said he would not rule out the possibility. Uh, we're not there, and he hopes we don't get there. But they're up to one hundred and ten cases now we talked to him 10 days ago yeah right after he'd gotten his first patient and they have 110 now they have 110 and but that's the case that's the curve you see everywhere and i'm not sure even within the united states i'm not sure the urgency is getting there yet sorry you asked me how things are going i guess that's how they're going right yeah yeah so uh Mm -hmm. yeah we'll talk more about this another time let's talk about the um the economic side, because that truly is, this truly is a, a historic day. Yeah. Congress just passed this upwards of $2 trillion aid package. So we want to understand what's going on there, uh, both what is in that bill and- Is it um, enough? And, and is it enough? Yeah. So Because when you say uh, $2 trillion, I think that's a lot. It certainly seems like a lot of it's money. It's way, way more than any other bill, any other bill of this sort ever in history. It's mm-hmm. three times as big as- the bank bailout bill during our our last recession. And yet, it's clearly not enough for the long term. And some people are wondering whether it's even enough for the very short term. Mm -hmm. So we're calling Adam Harris, who covers politics for The Atlantic. 
and who is going to hopefully help us figure out what is in this bill. Who's getting cash? How soon? Huge questions on people's minds, like panic. Okay. Okay. So calling Adam Harris. Hey. Hey, what's up, Hey, how's it going? Not too much. How are you? Oh, you know, um, writing it out. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm holed up in the closet next to two non-used guitars. So you're uh, actually yeah. in the closet, not just sitting facing the closet. I am actually in the closet nice. because if I just went in the room, then it would just be like you would still hear Princess and the Frog in the background, and also <laughs> Wendy yelling every now and then. Uh, so, in the closet is actually pretty quiet. <laughs> we were about four minutes late for Winnie's morning circle that she does with her Montessori school. Does she do it on on the computer or something? Yeah, she does it on Zoom. Um, so there's like 12 little rambunctious kids, like all running around, all of them two to three years old. And um, the teacher, of course, is like, hey, does everyone know what day it is? And one of the kids is like, nope. And I'm like, very same. And, uh, and then she's like, hey, kids, put five fingers in the air. And like, you just see all the kids like get real quiet and like put five fingers in the air. And then she starts singing five little monkeys. It was like a Jay-Z concert. It was lit. I was like, oh, this is so great. Hmm. Um, So that was my morning. (laughs) This all sounds pretty good. Yeah. You know, Um, (laughs) you know, um, I know nothing about what's happening in Congress uh, financially um, because I can't keep up with everything. Just trying to do the science stuff. Yeah. So essentially what Congress was able to do is to pass a two trillion dollar aid package for relief um, for both families, uh, education, public health, state and local government um, and big corporations as well. Um, And and it was kind of a it's been hailed as a remarkable act of bipartisanship, but it's kind of already being assumed that this is not going to be enough. They are still going to need another injection of funds for families who need to pay rent for businesses who who have had to close their doors um and as as the controller in new york city told me um they're taking a long economic nap right now and uh, when they wake up from this nightmare there's going to be a lot of realities financial and otherwise that they're going to have to deal with so just if you can give me some 101 like schoolhouse rock style education (laughs) on this so the way Congress votes on a bill is they all have to be there in the same room. Physically present, drinking only milk. <laughs> drinking only milk. They all have to be, well, a, a quorum. So a, a majority of, of, um, of the members have to be there and present in order to, to have a vote that is not a unanimous consent vote, something that they can just kind of say, everyone agrees that this is, this is what uh, we need to pass and, and they just pass the bill. If you want a recorded vote, then they are going to need a quorum. So right now, essentially what, what that means is 216 in order to have a quorum to have the vote. That could be 216. To be there in person in the same room. Absolutely. Yes. So they would have to be there in person in the same room in order to vote. And there has been kind of some momentum to, to get that changed because this is a unprecedented crisis that, requires kind of some modern thinking. Um, and it kind of would make sense for members of Congress to be able to vote um, virtually. But but as of right now... Are there now, any other... Is like, is how this how most industrialized governments work? Or are we an outlier? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, most industrialized governments are kind of built on in-person voting. 
Is there a reason for that that I'm not... I mean, it seems sort of ridiculous, given how we live, but is there a reason I'm not thinking of why that actually is really important? Um, the biggest reason is kind of tradition. That's it's kind of the way that it's the way that things have been done. But, you know, we don't live in the 18th century anymore. Um, so it's, it's, and, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for I'm, that. I very likewise. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I think it's, this has kind of shown some of those fissures in the system. It's shown even with things like voting, um, you know, places have had to postpone their elections and they don't have vote by mail infrastructures set up. Um, so it's kind of thrown a monkey wrench into the voting process. So coronavirus is really exposing some of those fissures in the system. I mean, the thing I'm confused about is this seems, I mean, I, I obviously I want to talk about this bill and everything, but it just feels like, how could it be that we could have a system that couldn't respond immediately? So the levers of government turn slowly. Um, to be as cliche as possible. Um, and essentially what they're trying to do now is speed up a response to an immediate crisis. The systems aren't prepared to deal with a process like this. There were legislators literally driving from their homes um, in places like Michigan or elsewhere, driving from their homes, trying to get back to D.C. Um, to vote. And of course, How could this be a good also- use of their time right now? I just, <laughs> well, sorry. There is a push to keep the legislators in D.C., but the Senate, of course, is now recessed until April 20th. So that means that a lot of people will be leaving the district and go back home. Um, but as this is a very immediate crisis, like we're saying, and right. and in such an immediate crisis, if if something breaks down next week, we've already seen that more than three million there were more than three million jobless claims. If something else breaks down to a significant point next week and members of the Senate have already gone home, um, then they will they will have to come back to Congress under um, kind of these severe travel restrictions. Can you give us an overview of the main points in the bill? Yeah. So the biggest thing that everyone has kind of harped on has been the cash payments. Um, so it's estimated total of $300 billion worth of, of cash payments to Americans. Um, you also have um, $260 billion for unemployment payments. You have uh, $350 billion allocated for the Small Business Administration um, to, to offer loans to small businesses. There's $10 billion for emergency grants, um, $58 billion for airlines. Uh, so, you know, $8.8 billion for, for child nutrition, $450 million for food banks. So there is a lot in there. And it, it's sort of this wraparound service that, that Americans have been kind of crying for for a while, right? Because this is essentially trying to build a social safety net as people are falling. Mm-hmm. This seems good, like a good first step. Um, I understand that it, well, we're going to have to revisit this, but where are the weak points in the practical execution of this? Like this, you know, billions and billions of dollars, trillions of dollars, sounds like a lot of money, but how is this actually going to be implemented? And what do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of it right now? The biggest thing is that it may not be enough. Most individuals who are earning less than $75,000 can expect a one-time cash payment of $1,200. Married couples would each get that check and they would get $500 per child, things like that. Um, I I spoke with with, um, Andrew Yang, who, who ran for president. And one of the things that he told me was, what is that one-time payment actually going 
to do. Right. Um, and actually, the, the check wouldn't arrive for a significant period of time. People who already had their direct deposit set up with the IRS would, would be able to receive them faster. But people who are unbanked might, it could be, you know, up to four months down the road. So, so there's an argument that, that there needs to be one more immediate assistance. They should just start sending out checks to Americans in order to cover it, cover those immediate expenses. But also, if you end up, you know, getting that check, say, the middle of next month or, or towards the end of next month, then what do you do the month after? You may have lost your job. You may not have childcare. You may have all of these other expenses that, that you were not prepared for, and you need to figure out a way to deal with those. Can I ask you just on the most granular level, hmm? over 3 million people apl- applied for unemployment last week. Hmm. Next week is April 1st. Rent is due. Is this bill going to solve that problem? Probably not immediately. Um, and and that's, that's the big problem. Um, of course, a lot of cities and states have implemented kind of eviction freezes um, where they're not carrying out eviction orders, but there hasn't been a national order to, to freeze rent. There hasn't been kind of a national eviction freeze. It's putting kind of the people who are already most vulnerable to to some of these actions kind of in a precarious situation. They won't be able to afford their rent. If they can't afford their rent, then they, they probably are going to have a difficult time affording their groceries and different things like that. And if, if the checks aren't coming immediately, you know, the bill does have written into it cash payments. And it, it'll take a little bit of time in order for those to get processed and sent out to the people who need them. So a little bit of time, like weeks, months? Um, weeks. And if you haven't already signed up for direct deposit with the federal government, then it could take, you know, months. We talk on this podcast a lot about emotion and what is motivating people and what is causing panic and what is not. I think to Andrew Yang's point and to something we have discussed before that a lot of this is about certainty and not so much about the money as about knowing that you're going to at least have a place to stay. Um, You're going to be able to feed yourself. You're going to have a place to go when you get sick. Um, You know, that if if, if you gave people even $5,000 immediately, um, Mm -hmm. that might not, that would not ameliorate the panic in the same way that you knew you're going to have a monthly income, uh, much less than $5,000 for the next few Mm -hmm. months um, or for for the next year, you're going to have a house, you're going to have food, you're not going to be homeless. Um, you're not going to be without a, a bed to go to. That's what makes me worry about the the one-time payment. I don't know how much it does to um, get rid of that uncertainty that people will still be facing, even when they're they're not immediately bankrupt. It's they don't know where this is headed. Yeah. Um, so if you said, okay, we're going to give you a one-time check right now. Um, there might be more in the future, but right now, here's money for you in order to pay your bills. Um, that offers at least a little bit of security, but kind of the long tail of I don't know when this money is coming is kind of helping foster some of that insecurity for for a lot of Americans. Yeah. All right. Um, we should let you out of your closet, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hear I hear Charlotte crying, so I'm going to oh, go no. have pizza for a minute with lunch. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. Most thank definitely. You. Thank you, guys. All right. Take care. Talk to you soon. Bye. $2 trillion largest stimulus in American history. (sighs) Hopefully, hopefully it'll help.
Hey, Jim, you want to do the credits today? Oh, sure. Listen to our podcast, Social Distance, featuring me, James Hamblin, America's premier doctor and also the author of Clean. No, this show is produced by Alvin Melleth and Kevin Townsend with help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. Also, if you are uh, a medical professional or someone working in a hospital and you would like to talk to us or if you want us to cover what's going on where you are, reach out. Um, Our video team and all of our journalists here are also available to talk and interested in hearing about your experience. So uh, write us at socialdistance@theatlantic.com. And you can check out uh, Adam's story and all of our other coverage on our website. Okay. Later. Bye.